millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Jim, both of us live in the metropolitan, some would say cosmopolitan Northeast. You in the Hudson Valley, just north of New York City, and me on the Connecticut coast east of New Haven. Both of these regions are solidly Democrat and liberal. But you don't have to go very far out of New York City or away from the New England coastline to find a lifestyle and a type of politics that's really quite different. Today we hear about a public radio reporter and what she learned when she moved from Seattle to sagebrush country in rural Washington state. America's dramatic urban-rural divide with Ashley Ahern. You know, I have a neighbor who's, um, he makes gun holsters and he's very conservative. And, you know, he calls me a libtard and I call him an asshole on a regular basis. And then we laugh and then we drink whiskey and then we ride horses and we go on with our lives. The conversations are interesting because you get to see all of the gray in everybody's politics. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? She lived in one of the most liberal cities in America, working as a radio journalist covering science, climate change, and the environment for NPR for more than a decade. But then in 2018, Ashley Ahern made a big jump, moving with her husband to one of the most conservative counties in rural Washington state. And what did she discover about her neighbors and herself when she switched from the city to the country now she lives on a 20-acre property, probably the only person in the county who owns both a pickup truck and an electric car. <laughs> yeah. The interview with Ashley was done recently for the podcast, Let's Find Common Ground. Richard, you co-host and produce that show for Common Ground Committee with another Ashley, Ashley Milne-Tite. So first we asked Ashley Ahern, why did she move? and opt for a complete change in lifestyle? Well, several different reasons. I would be lying if I said that I wasn't burned out on city life. I grew up in small towns in Massachusetts, suburban, not rural, um, but I knew that there was more to the story after the election in 2016, and that the voices from rural America were not being um, interrogated, covered, or really probed in a way that felt sincere and invested. 
I guess for lack of a better word, that what we have in, in a lot of media now is a concentration of journalism jobs in urban centers. And what that translates into from a production standpoint is journalists that go out into rural communities, parachute in for a story, record, and then pick the sexiest sound bites, maybe in many cases the most radical, most Trumpy, most ignorant sounding, and then bring them back to their liberal listenerships in the urban hubs. And it cements and furthers and perpetuates these divides that we see. And so as an environment reporter living in Seattle, so many of those stories, so many of those divisions play out around environmental issues, whether it's conservation of a controversial bird or logging proposals or mining proposals, or, you know, you can almost predict how people are going to fall on a certain issue based on what their political leanings are. This was at a time of increasing partisanship, including a bigger urban-rural divide. What changed? Once Trump was elected, I think that's what really brought it to a head for me, was the sincere feeling that I didn't know the people who had elected that president. I didn't know them. I didn't interview them. Or if I did, I didn't spend time with them to really understand the context that would make them say the things that they were saying to journalists like myself. Yeah. So were you shocked or surprised in 2016 by the election of Donald Trump? Oh, sure. We all were. Nobody saw that coming, right? Like, I mean, I think there were a few outliers that said we should have been ready. Uh, part of that breakdown in, in communication between urban and rural and conservative and liberal America is that we didn't fully understand the scope and the breadth and the depth of his support, particularly in places like Okanagan County, where I live now. Yeah, where, where do you live now? Tell us a bit more about yeah. that. <laughs> So I live on 20 acres of sagebrush, um, about 20 miles from the Canadian border in north central Washington state in a cabin that is about 650 square feet. What are you looking at right now or what can you see either out your window or from your front door? Uh, so right now I'm going to look out the window and see if I can spot the coyotes that were there. Um, earlier this morning, uh, and actually just two days ago, one literally walked through. The chickens were out. I have four chickens. They are my first chickens, and I'm very attached to them. And um, a coyote walked through our yard, literally 15 yards from the house, and swiped Penny, my one of my beloved chickens, not a cluck, not a feather lost, and just trotted off like he just left the grocery store and never to be seen again. So it's wild out here. <laughs> it's real. So just to be clear, your chicken is gone for good? Oh, yeah. That chicken is dead. That chicken is very dead. And I am not a guns person, but in that moment, I wanted a gun very badly. And I was just like, you know, just being able to fire off a shot just to put a little bit of the fear of God in them. You understand more the longer you spend out here, why people operate the way they do when they live this close to predators and other kinds of animals. Remind me, how many how many years have you lived there now? It's been three years. Talk about that transition. I mean, you were in a city environment. You said you grew up in a suburban environment. What has that transition been like? Um, it's been beautiful. It's been really beautiful. There's a lot of quiet out here and there's a lot of visiting. You know, country people visit. They don't catch up, they visit. And you really spend a lot of time around campfires. You spend a lot of time on horseback. You spend a lot of time moving slowly through the landscape. And I think that is what has afforded me the ability to truly fall in love with sagebrush country and and the people that I've met here who I may find some of their political views abhorrent, to be clear. Um, but I have learned so much from them about how to live in this place. 
and the history of this place and the culture of this place. And I think that as I've built rapport and relationships with them, it's opened the door for conversations that I have never been able to have as a journalist kind of showing up for a brief stint or a vacationer coming to country like this. And I think it's made me a better journalist. Um, and I can only say that I think that through conversation and through being, you know, the only person that's driving an electric car on my road, um, but also drives a pickup truck and hauls horses and moves cows, certain conversations happen with me and my husband in this community that aren't happening among the people who have always lived here, if that makes sense. And I think by translation, I'm learning and I, my perception has changed in terms of the kinds of questions I ask and the way I approach stories and the angles that I choose to interrogate um, that I don't think would have been possible if I was doing it from Seattle. Ashley, I'm curious about your friendships. You lived mm -hmm. in a busy city, had a job. Are your friendships now in sage country deeper? Do you have more moving or, or less transactional conversations with people? My memories of living in the city over the years in my 20s and, and early 30s were, um, you know, you catch up with people. You get together and you have dinner. You have a meal. You check out a new restaurant. Maybe you go for um, a walk at the local park. But they're very short periods of time, you know, that are, you know, maybe two, a two-hour dinner party or a nice meal, right? But you're still sort of checking in. And I, when I think back on those times, many of my conversations were about work. You know, people are very defined by their careers, I think, more in an urban environment. And it may have been in the circles that I was traveling in as a really career-focused and, and sort of obsessed with my work, I would say, in that last period of my life in Seattle. And now? It's a bit of a slower process. You don't just connect over things that you have in common, in part probably because I have less in common with many of the people that I'm meeting. Um, but working the land has been a great way to connect. I joined the Backcountry Horsemen, and they do a lot of trail maintenance work. So getting out and just cutting back brush and um, clearing old barbed wire from the landscape, um, making sure trails are open, cutting trees that have fallen across the trails together. You spend hours, and so little snippets of conversation happen, but it's less about what you do as a career and more about what you see in the landscape around you, what your goals are together. You're working with people towards something. Yeah, it feels more concrete in some ways. The maintenance work that you're doing, you were on horseback. You mm -hmm. were with Trigger, your horse. Right? <laughs> pistol, pistol. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, pistol. Oh, God, I should have said that. <laughs> Crappy memory. You, no, it's all right. It's all right. She won't be offended. She is uppity, though. <laughs> what about your neighbors? When you moved in, did they just show up and introduce themselves? What happened? Yeah, I still remember when we first moved in, um, one of the cowboys up the road came to visit on his horse and brought um, a dozen eggs. He just came riding up the driveway. We were like, who is this guy? He's got his you know, full cowboy hat on. He's riding a beautiful paint. And uh, there's a deep sense of, of hospitality. I think that's been tested in recent years as more kind of city people move into places like this. Um, and I do think it, it gets a little bit, you have to really reach out. You have to really actively be kind of putting yourself out there. And so I think after a while, it, it is about consistency and it's about hard work more than it's about um, anything else, I think, in, in some of these places. So I think, yes, it was hard to make friends at first, but not not once you cut through that initial, oh, where are you from? What did you do in the city? Okay, well, actually, do you want to go ride horses? Or do you want to go clear some trail? Or do you want to, um, you know, move cows? And once I was kind of through that door, I think um, things got a little easier. 
You've talked a little bit about um, how you've changed as a journalist, but how have you changed as a person as a result of this extraordinary immersion into a very different part of the country? I think I'm calmer. I think uh, I spend a lot more time um, by myself than maybe I ever did in the city. I am healthier. I'm outdoors for hours of every day. And I also made the transition of working for um, an organization to being my own boss. And so uh, I'm just as successful financially, to be honest. And I control my hours and I control my clients and I control the work that I do. And so um, that's been uh, a real, a really big factor. And I think my sense of well-being and, and kind of happiness in this in this new life is the ability to, you know, be up early and be working all morning and then to go move cows all afternoon or ride my horse all afternoon or, or do trail work. So I think my politics have maybe softened a little bit as well. I think I, I'll always be, you know, liberal on certain issues. Um, but I, I certainly feel maybe more on the property rights issues and the guns. When you look at it from a rural perspective and you ask questions about why certain guns are needed at certain times. Um, for example, if my horse, you know, Pistol and I go miles and miles and miles up into the backcountry, and if she ever broke her leg, there's not a vet that's going to come. You know, you learn, okay, well, it's a 38. And you make the you make the line um, from the ear to the eye and the ear to the eye and you the bullet goes right in the middle of that X, and that's how you make your horse stop suffering when you're in the backcountry. And I shudder to ever think about having to do that if pistol broke her leg. But I also know that when we talk about guns, that's one side of that story, right? That's another facet that I think I wouldn't have considered. Um, when I was living in Seattle, where it's just like, no, just just get rid of guns. We don't need guns. Well, yeah, I'm really glad you raised politics because I wanted to ask you about that, about how how you differ from your neighbors politically, because you describe yourself have done as you're very liberal in Seattle. But so tell us a little bit more about your neighbors of the place that you now live. What do they believe? What are their politics? I had come here with certain assumptions that Everybody was kind of hardline, rabid Trump supporters out here, you know, gun-toting, pro-life, all of that. And the truth is much more gray. I move cows for one rancher who, um, yeah, thinks climate change is cyclical. It's not real. Um, but we have conversations now about how the wildfires are getting worse and more frequent and the droughts are longer and he can't find water as easily in his pastures in some of the high country areas where his cows go that used to be full of water for, for longer stretches of the summer. Um, and so... While I would just assume that some people are just sort of hardliners, I'm finding that, um, you know, the cowboy at, at Easter dinner with his wife's a yoga instructor, you know, and so he's maybe a little more on the conservative side. But I think he voted for Biden. He might have voted for Trump the first time because he didn't like Hillary, but he voted for Biden this last time. And so it's a spectrum. Right. And I think that I try not to put people in boxes. And and I do have, you know, other neighbors who are hardline. You know, I have a neighbor who's um, he makes gun holsters and he's very conservative. And, you know, he calls me a libtard and I call him an asshole on a regular basis. And then we laugh and then we drink whiskey and then we ride horses and we go on with our lives. The conversations are interesting because you get to see all of the gray in everybody's politics, as opposed to coming to the table with the expectation that we're hardline opposed to one another. And I think, yes, I, I skew liberal in the sense that I am you know, a feminist, I'm pro-choice on certain issues, but in general, I would say I'm moving more toward the independent side of things. And so 
I maybe come from a liberal background, but I live in a rural place and I have deep respect and curiosity about this place. And so I, I hope that, you know, people will talk to me here because they can trust that I am open to listening and sincerely want to understand as opposed to pretending that I'm objective and then finding out later on that I went back to Seattle and reported a story that confirms the liberal bias of my listeners. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're listening to an interview with Ashley Ahern that you recorded for Common Ground Committee. Yeah, along with my co-host, Ashley Milne-Tite. Common Ground Committee is a nonprofit group that uses public events, podcasts, and other media to bring people together from different points of view, not to agree, but to seek common ground. Find out more about what they do at commongroundcommittee.org. Now more of our interview with Ashley Ahern. We mentioned climate change and the environment. What can urban people learn from country people? I think that we are going to be looking to rural America for survival advice. I think that as we look at how climate change unfolds um, in terms of more wildfires, more drought, more flooding, more natural disasters, when you live close to the land, you help one another survive. And that can look a lot of different ways, but I think that when we, when we look at a climate-changed future, those survival skills are going to be things that more city people want to, to adopt and to learn from, whether it's canning your own food, to shooting your own prey, <laughs> to protecting your house from wildfire and natural disasters, to rebuilding these basic like uh, craft skills that I think people in rural America tend to use more regularly by, by necessity. And then I think in terms of how we talk about climate change, there's a lot to learn. If I use that word out here or that phrase, I almost say it tongue in cheek. Um, I prefer to talk about it as maybe more broadly changes that we're all seeing on the landscape um, and start with people's observations of this place. Give us an example of that. So it was one of the first years I was here and we were gearing up for a really bad, really dry um, wildfire season. And the reason that I was kind of attuned to it was because all of my neighbors and people I knew were talking about how the creeks and the ponds were lower than they ever are in May. And so I did a story. This this community was the site of the largest wildfire in Washington state history until this past summer, unfortunately. But back in 2014, the Carlton Complex fire burned more than 250,000 acres. So I started asking people, oh, well, so are you 
you know, it's pretty dry this year. I mean, and I went in, you know, hard charging. It's climate change, right? Like this is real. This is these fires are going to be more severe. And and I realized pretty quickly that that was a non-starter for a lot of my friends here, a lot of the community. Um, and so I started sort of changing the way I would ask the question, which was, um, how have you seen things change? Is this drier than you remember? Um, and I'll never forget it. I was talking to, I was at a backcountry horseman meeting and I was talking to this, um, the matriarch of the backcountry horseman here is a woman named Betty Wagner and she's in her 80s and still rides and still snowmobiles. She's a firecracker. She's lived in the valley her whole life. I love her. And I asked Betty, I was like, Betty, is, is it, we know climate change is happening. I mean, the, the, the creeks and the ponds are drier. And she said, no, 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 no. It's, it's not, you know, no, it's, it's, you're basically, you're overreacting. You're one of those scared city liberals, you know, who's just terrified of this thing and it's fine. Don't worry about it. So maybe this is a non-starter for her. But I went around and I did the story anyway. And I talked to a lot of other people in the community and the story went in the local paper. And Betty saw her peers all collectively acknowledging that things were different, that things looked different than they had in previous years. And sure enough, I saw her at the next monthly Backcountry Horseman meeting and she said, you know, um, yeah, it, 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 it is drier. It is drier out here. And it, it's drier than I remember. And good job on the story. And I have to say that meant so much to me, not because I think I changed her mind or she thinks climate change is real now, but I think that it's this iterative process of representing what is actually happening on the landscape that people out here respect more in some ways than the scientific papers that talk about what's going to happen in the future. And what about liberals or progressives? Do you think they understand people who live in rural areas and their concerns? There's plenty of ignorance to go around. <laughs> there are plenty of ignorant Republicans and conservatives, and there are plenty of ignorant liberals. I think that when it comes to how liberals perceive rural people, that you know people out here are just have their heads in the sand, right? They don't want to think about this. They're denying the science, um, and they uh, aren't going to do anything about climate change. And the truth is, people out here are adapting already. Well, you said to me that, that those who support new laws and regulations to restrict may not necessarily realize the impact of their proposed changes on rural America. I have a theory. I think that some people, um, when they don't want to believe that climate change is real, if you peel back the onion a little bit on that, it's if you acknowledge that climate change is real, then that necessitates certain actions and certain carbon taxes or reductions or limitations in our emissions that could directly harm people who have uh, lower incomes and live closer to the land, i.e. rural America. And what I mean by that is um, this feeling that <laughs> city liberals will will wring their hands about emissions, carbon emissions, and then you know go to their, their nearby airport and take vacations and fly all over the place. Um, Whereas they'll be very quick, though, to point the finger at somebody who drives a pickup truck and gets low miles per gallon. When if you actually do the math on that, driving a pickup truck all year is less than taking your flight to Hawaii for your family vacation for, you know, four people. I don't know how people can live out here without, without a heavy-duty vehicle. That's what I mean when, you know, city liberals and Seattle is particularly aggressive on this. Um, carbon policy, climate policy is just the talk of, you know, what do we do? How do we make this equitable? How do we, um, you know, reduce em emissions across the state? And I think what that translates into out here is, you know, a very um, liberal governor 
a very you know liberal voting concentration populace on the west side of the state that dictates policy that will affect people out here adversely and will cost them more money and threaten their ability to continue to do their livelihoods, i.e. raising livestock, farming, um, those kinds of things that really drive economies out here. Your podcast series is called Grouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us why you decided to do it. Why grouse? Why is grouse um, a, a symbol of some of the issues that are really worth tackling when it comes to a country life and environmental and conservation concerns? Grouse, spotted owl, I mean, these are kind of, these are animals that divide us because they become symbols of um, environmental overreach, um, federal laws that protect endangered species, that prohibit certain activities in areas where the, that species can be found. And so this bird, as I spent more time in sagebrush country, it became more and more clear to me that, you know, if it wasn't the the sage grouse, it was going to be the coyote, or it's the wild horse, or it's, you know, pick your pick your species that people get riled up about and that speaks to their sort of core values in terms of what side they're going to choose. And so I wanted to use this bird, which many of us may never see in our whole lives. It's very obscure. You can't make the case that it is an economic driver. <laughs> you can't say that we need to protect these birds because we make money off of them. And the conversation about grouse is part of a much bigger debate over the use of land and the environment. Oil and gas jobs are a vital part of the economy in some western states. And if we're to transition away from fossil fuels, can we do it in a way that doesn't stigmatize those oil and gas workers? I asked Ashley about that. Paul seems genuinely concerned about the birds, but he's also worried about the people in the oil and gas industry. Natural gas production in Wyoming has declined 37% over the past 10 years. People are losing their jobs right and left in the state right now. Uh, my, nephew, uh, my nephew was making a living working in the Jonah field uh, with a service provider. He's no longer able to work. He's unemployed. Um, and, and hundreds of individuals in this county and the surrounding area find themselves in that same boat today, and it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. If you want to see a... You want to see a grown man cry, you're seeing it. You know, people in my family have lost their jobs because of what we're going through today. And it's unbearable at times. It really is. Sorry. I found it really surprising what I heard. Did you? Can you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that was... Um... It meant a lot to me to meet with him in person. Um, and we were he was going to take me out around the gas fields, actually, until the pandemic hit. And then we did. Instead, we just ended up doing the interview from a safe distance, you know, outside at his house, visiting in person and coming to him with a sincere interest of, I want to understand your business. Because the truth is, like, America does still run very much on natural gas. And we need to own up to that. And we need to look at that. But it... You don't get to just dismiss those people. The transition, like fighting climate change is going to hurt. It is going to cost people their livelihoods. Um, it is going to it is going to affect communities like the gas fields of Wyoming. Um, and we need to we need to show some compassion and some some sympathy and empathy for those communities. That's that's kind of what I was hoping would come through in that conversation with that man. 
a lot of these jobs are really dangerous, and they've been very much involved in giving us reliable energy for many decades. Uh, even if we have to transition away, there does need to be some compassion and some empathy for people whose livelihoods may well be threatened or changed. Well, and I think the other thing that's often missing from these conversations is, okay, if not coal or if not gas, then what in these communities? Why do people still live here? How will they feed their families if this is no longer the industry of note in their community? And coming with some solutions and some other options would also be a great way to be having these conversations as opposed to, like you said, Richard, just condemning those industries. I have gotten so much from the conversations that I've had with people here in my community who see things differently than I do. I do think that there is um, an opportunity for conversation. I just stop a little bit short of saying that we're going to find agreement. I hate to end on a downer note. Well, let me ask you, do you think, would you ever move back to a city or are you there for good now? I, it's a long life. So never say never. Um, but I can't, I can't picture the job that would get me back to a city um, right now. And that would probably be the only reason I would move back to a city. If my family needs me back in Massachusetts, that's one thing. But um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's going to be a tough sell to get me out of the sagebrush. I think I'm entrenched. <laughs> Ashley Ahern speaking on Let's Find Common Ground just a few weeks ago. And coming next, our conversation. But first, the recommendation. Richard, you've got a great appropriate recommendation this week, but before you get to it, I need to make a correction because in last week's podcast, I recommended my favorite new online New York Times puzzle challenge, and I called Pangram, but the actual name, if you want to go find it and subscribe, is called Spelling Bee. Ah, good. Okay, so there, that'll, that'll clear it up for... Thousands of confused. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure the the Google is just overwhelmed with searches for what the heck was that Meg guy Meg's talking about Pangram. <laughs> and this week's recommendation is something that was mentioned in the interview with Ashley Hearn, which is her wonderful podcast series called Grouse about the most controversial bird in the West, uh, the sage grouse. And one of the things I love about it, apart from the humor, is just how beautiful the sound is. Um, one of the things we hear is the fluttering of the bird's wings. And it, and it just sort of puts you right there in a way that really good audio recordings almost kind of take over your imagination. That's great. And now to our conversation, Jim. Richard, you knew you had my number when you selected this from one of your many other projects that you're involved in in this podcast universe. But I was really, really touched by her openness to talk to people who look at the world very differently, to see them as lifelong friends, really after just three years living in that area. She says she never wants to move back to the city. I found that very moving. And I really liked her honesty and saying, just because I'm hanging out with these people doesn't mean I agree with them about everything. What I have to do is listen to them better. Yeah, th this is the common ground element that uh, Let's Find Common Ground is trying to address, which is you don't have to agree, but perhaps a little more respect or understanding for people not like you 
is a really important way to move forward. Right. And, you know, we often, I think, have this illusion that everybody needs to to compromise and come up with a universally acceptable solution. More important, I think, is to accept that there's some things that we may never find a completely mutually agreeable solution to, but we can still respect each other. We can still have dialogue. My favorite little bit in the podcast is when she says that she's got this buddy who's really conservative, and she says, he calls me a libtard, and then I call him an asshole, and then, <laughs> and then we laugh, and we drink whiskey, and we go ride horses. This is... I was going to say, let's find common ground, but it's, (laughs) how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for nonprofits and companies. You can find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.